All right, everybody, welcome to episode 43, A Closer Look. I am Dr. Christopher Pisano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat. This is the Stem Cell Podcast. What up, Yos? How's it going, hey, man? Things are good. I like that title there, uh, Closer Look. Where are we closer looking at? Oh, I right. love that. It's a, it's a closer look. So the clo- a closer look is the first part of a website that really we're going to talk to today with our guests. It's a, a closer look at stemcells.org. It's a um, really an educational, informative piece that was um, uh, really by the put on and, and I guess spearheaded by the International Society for Stem Cell Research to really get information out to everyone uh, about stem cells, how stem cells turn into therapy, how you should decide um, if you're considering getting a stem cell therapy, um, you know what to, what questions to ask, all things to know. Um, the the process of science, Yos, which we you know, which is a crazy process. How you go from discovery to a therapy. So a really really awesome um, uh, resource, and we're going to talk to uh, two. Uh, we have two guests for our interview uh, tonight: uh, Dr. Megan Muncy and Dr. Mario De Cruz. Um, we got a little bit of a uh, Mario is a patient and a medical practi- practitioner, and Megan is a a scientist, a developmental biologist. And really working together, actually, on some some aspects to inform people about stem cells and stem cell therapy. So we're going to get into that with them um, a little bit later on. How you yeah, doing, man? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I uh, yeah, things are good in the lab and uh, just trucking along. How about yourself? How's that grant? I, I put in. I put out. You know, across my. You put out my good vibes, yeah, Scott. Yeah. I got. I got one. I got scored. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably won't get it on the score, but I will most likely be able to resubmit, hopefully get it down. So I'll take a score nowadays. Right. Um, you know, nowadays I see that ND not discussed on my line and that's just like a kick in the stomach. So uh, I didn't get that kick. Uh, I got a score, which is nice and I'll take it to the next, uh, the next step. So thanks for asking. Well, everything's good here. Spring is in full effect, man. I was out in my yard the other day. I got my green thumb going on. Yeah. So I love it when the four Cynthia's and flowers. Have, do you have trans- any four Cynthia's? Those those yellow bright bright. I don't have them, but they're out now and they're in bloom. The first sign of spring. It also is the first indication that you have to put uh, uh, feed your lawn. Uh, yeah. So um, I'm feeding my lawn to wake it up. But that's a, another podcast, probably for another day. We are the stem cell podcast, the uh, official podcast of. The ISSCR, the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Like I said, we're going to talk to you about that new website they launched. A little bit later in the show, uh, please make sure you go and register for ISSCR 2015, uh, which is coming up in uh, in June. June. You know, Yos, I, so I, I have this thing. I think this is what we're going to do, and um, tell me what you think about it. So I think we're going to start this thing called Hashtag Stem Cell Story. What I would like everybody to do out there in audience land, Stem Cell Podcast land, I know you're out there, I would like you guys to tweet us. Write us, stemcellpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook. Um, By the way, we finally got a thousand likes. We got a thousand likes? Yeah, All we right. got a uh, Brian. We were hanging at 999 for a while. Yeah, Brian Wong. He's a poet and an a artist. It says on his page. So and he's our, thousand, he's our thousand yeah, likes. There so you go, man. we got a poet out there. Nice uh, work. Brian Thanks for um, sending us over. So we want everybody to tell us their stem cell story. So if you want, you can tweet us and use the hashtag stem cell story. Also, if anyone's going, anyone out there is going to the meeting in Sweden, ISSCR 2015, we want you to come by the booth, or really won't be a booth, we're at ISSCR Central on the main floor. 
We want you to come over there, and we want you to tell us your stem cell story. We'll get on the air. Uh, we'll do an interviews, uh, and we want everybody to tell the world and tell us why you love stem cells and what, why you're, you know, why you're into stem cells, why, why you're fascinated by them, like, like how we are. So, um, we'll do that. We'll, we'll get a little more specific about what some of the stuff we're going to be doing at the meeting. We got a bunch of T-shirts, right, Yos? We're going to be giving out. Yep. Um, we got ties that we're going to be giving to some speakers at ISSCR. Anyone speaking out there that wants a tie? Don't worry, Paul. I got your tie on hold. And um, uh, let's see. Anything else I got here? Next Gen Conference, nextgenstemcell.com. It's in May. It's coming up real soon. We'll all be there. Make sure you can still go register. A couple weeks left. Um, anything else you got, Yost, no, before we move it. on? Uh, let's get to the roundup. All right. Let's do the roundup, which is sponsored by Thermo Fisher. Thermo is great. Uh, they've been helping us since day one. They've really helped us get the podcast to where it is. And they're also fantastic about uh, pushing stem cell research forward. Um, I'm, I'm a user of their products. I use them all the time in the that lab. E8, that E6 media, what do you got? Yeah, you know what? I do. I do. I'm messing around with little transitional medias, you know, a little from. Yeah, you are. From, yeah, yeah. I'm a little want, E6, a little bare boned. It helps me uh, transition my, uh, my rich supplements out. Xeno free. Uh, yeah, Zeno free. You can get all that stuff on their website. You can just go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner. It'll take you there. Um, and again, I, I didn't even mention stemcellpodcast.com. You know that's where we are. You can find all of our info and register for our email list there. And I will shut up. Yost will <laughs> round right. it up. Do well, it, man. Uh, I got to just mention the Nature article. I think you're going to uh, talk about it. It's Paul Teaser's uh, uh, discovery there. So I'm not going to talk too much. I'll I'll let you uh, cover that one. But uh, our friend of the podcast, Paul Castro, is probably going to be interested in it. He's uh, very into multiple sclerosis research uh, findings, and that's a pretty big one. So uh, I'll just skip over that, and you'll cover it later. Uh, there was a nano letters study uh, creating a system that can capture carbon dioxide emissions before they're released into the atmosphere and convert it into fuels pharmaceuticals, plastics, and other valuable products. So it's a term they're calling artificial photosynthesis. So mimicking what plants do, uh, uses minute silicon and titanium oxide nanowires studded with sporomusa ovata bacteria. And so these uh, nanowires can capture light energy and deliver it to the bacteria, which convert CO2 in the air to acetate. Uh, which is a building block for biofuels and plastics. So uh, it's uh, being hailed as a pretty big breakthrough. So you can find that in nano letters. Uh, there was a science advances study showing that a Amazonian hunter and gatherer tribe, uh, it, this tribe has the most diverse microbiome ever found. Have you seen this study? No, I didn't. Yeah, so despite having never been exposed to commercial antimicrobials, some of their resident microbes carry genes that confer resistance to man-made antibiotics. Uh, that means they had the ability to res- uh, the ability to resist antibiotics was there long before our drugs came along. So uh, this tribe called the Yanomami tribe was first contacted in the 1960s. Can you believe they never saw like the outside world until the 1960s? No, man. Uh, yeah. And so they, the idea is they don't live in this hyper sanitized society. So they harbor uh, gut bacteria. Uh, they basically swab them and um, 
they found that their gut bacteria uh, was a the most diverse uh, that's been found, and they had functional genes that encode for antibiotic resistance. And these genes turn on in response to antibiotics. And in tests, they deactivated various natural, semi-synthetic, and synthetic drugs. So this shows that uh, the the silenced antibiotic resistant genes show that you don't have to be exposed to antibiotics to possess this resistance. Uh, so the genes, uh, this study suggests that the genes equipped to resist antibiotics may be a natural feature of the human microbiome. So this is just showing like, you know, I, you know, I'm into the microbiome. So <laughs> another case for, for the books. Um, there was a neurocase study that found the region of the brain responsible for interpreting art sarcasm. So, uh, did you see this at all? No, I uh, didn't. Yeah, so uh, the investigators uh, took MRI brain scans of 24 stroke patients and looked for damage in eight white matter tracts in each patient. And uh, the participants also took a sarcasm test in which they listened to 40 sen- sentences spoken either sincerely or sarcastically. For instance, the, the, one of them was, this, this looks like a safe boat. Now, I, I don't know how you would say that sarcastically, like, this looks like a safe boat. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, so after they uh, controlled for age and education level, they found that uh, damage to the right sagittal stratum significantly impaired a person's ability to understand sarcasm. Five of the participants had significant damage to the structure. And on the sar- t- sarcasm test, these participants correctly identified only 22% of the sarcastic statements compared to 50% of patient, uh, 50% for the patients who did not have damage to that structure. And the right sagittal stratum group also did worse in identifying sincere statements. So they got 57% correct compared to 67% from the group without that damage. So on average, like the general population can identify 90% of the time uh, this correctly. So these the, I, they really sort of nailed it down here. So... Cool. They, yeah, we know the brain region for, for sarcasm. Um, so uh, moving on, there was a metabolomics study uh, of a new way to diagnose breast cancer. So uh, to, they did a blood cancer, they did a, a blood test uh, in uh, 57,000 participants over 20 years. Uh, this is a Danish group. They gathered blood samples uh, along the way over 20 years, and a smallish selection of 800 women was split into two groups, those that remained healthy throughout the entire process and those who developed breast cancer within seven years of their first blood sample. And their blood samples were compared to the metabolic uh, profiles that they built up. And the method uh, was also used to predict breast cancer in a different data set of women who were examined in 1997. So the researchers found that they were able to predict uh, with 80% accuracy which patients would be uh, affected by the disease just by the simple blood test. Um so while, you know, you'd rather have 100%, 80% is pretty good for a simple blood test. So I'm kind of into metabolomics as well. So it seems like uh, 
it, it could help out because you know early detection for breast cancer is key. If yeah, you catch it, uh, you know, if you catch it at up to stage two, you have a ninety-three percent to one hundred percent chance of surviving, which drops precipitously the further along you go. So, um, moving on, uh, there was a Royal Society of Open Science of a troop of uh, chimpanzees in southeastern Senegal that forged their own weapons to hunt. Did you no, see this? Come on, yeah, man. man. This is uh, they making them the only known group to use tools to injure or kill prey. The females actually engaged in the behavior more than men. On average, the tools were around seventy-five centimeters or thirty inches in length, and uh, they were the the chimps would basically creep up on sleeping bush babies and stab them. And what? yeah, <laughs> and what you know, they basically the 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 females so. They observed this in more than 300 tool assistant hunts, and 175 of them were performed by the females. And given that uh, the hunting groups are male-dominated, with females only making about 40% of the members... uh, Males were significantly less likely to hunt than females, so they think they're just more opportunistic, given that they're smaller in size, and just, I guess, more opportunistic and innovative in general. So maybe that's uh, something that came, you know, maybe uh, that reflects on our tool-making and hunting abilities that uh, women... It came from first. That's what they're thinking. But there, I've been seeing some crazy stuff with chimps lately. Like there is a American Journal of Primatology showing that ninety percent of Uganda chimps look both ways before crossing the street. <laughs> I feel like they're evolving with us and becoming more like us every that's, day. That's cool. yeah, I know. Um, real quick, just a couple quick studies. There was a biotech company. I don't know if you've heard of them called Counterculture Labs. They got Baker's yeast to synthesize eleven proteins that will be the foundation of their new vegan cheese so imagine eating cheese made from bacteria like completely uh, (laughs) synthesized so that's their that's their model um and i have to you know i know we're running low on time but i have to cover this j journal psychiatry and neuroscience study showing that the most significant risk factor for depression is limiting gene function in BDNF and serotonin transmission. Uh, These uh, patients were extra sensitive to the damaging effects of childhood abuse. So in other words, abusive history in the family and lack of gene activity can result in an increased risk for suffering from depression. And Mm. I'll just end it on that because uh, you got, I'm sure we we got a nice long interview to go. So uh, yeah, we do. Thank you. And I don't have, I don't have a lot tonight just because I think we're in a weird, um, sometimes you just get like a weird publishing week and there was not a lot. Um, So I'll move through pretty quick. I'll just touch on some things. I'm going to end with Paul's paper we talked about in nature and um, I'm not going to really go into that even too much because we have Paul coming on the show um, in the next Couple month and a half or something. Maybe might even be right after ISSR, and he'll he'll be able to walk through in much more detail. So I'll start. You know the company CDI, Joseph Cellular Dynamic International, yeah. started uh, founded by out? yeah, so it's founded by Jamie Thompson, and really they were um, uh, the company really has kind of pushed its way into leading. I guess to the leading role in automating manufacturing human cells so they can make cells. They, they got make bought it out by like. Fuji Films or something. Fu- yeah, yeah, they were bought by Fuji Films, so they they can you know they're making you know using IPS and these technologies ES to to generate cell types, and then they were selling the cell types, and so it was just uh, recently purchased or it's a pending sale 
by uh, Fujifilm Holdings for $307 million. Nice. Now, I, I, you know, I, I day trade a little bit with this app called Robinhood. It's free trades. I made a killing off of that one. I, even though I'm only playing with like $500, I doubled my little $200 investment with them. Yeah, you did. Just because I was like, whoa, I made 100% and it was, that stock doubled. Yeah, it did. I'm yeah. wondering how Jamie did with that with that sale. Yeah, uh, I know they had some financial issues, but um, so anyway, Fuji Fuji Film, I guess, appears poised to act on the promise of CDI. I don't think they're trying to bury it. I mean, they're they intend to combine its own technologies with CDI and an, and another company. I guess it purchased the Japan Tissue Engineering Company to develop organ regenerative treatments. Mm-hmm. So they're going to keep it going, keep uh, put their uh, money in and other technology stuff in. And uh, really see if they can push the technology forward. I think they identify that the time is now, and they're going to uh, make a push. Uh, I, whenever there's something with my alma mater, University of Miami, I tend to get it in there. Uh, go you, go Canes. Uh, the UM stem cell research could grow bone and potentially treat obesity. I love when they give you these lines. You know, you know, it's like we've discovered a way to fix this and get you thin. You know, it's like always like uh, I think we talked about that with like the breast implants and taking fat and putting it into your breasts. Yeah. Um, so this is a new stem cell study at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. They isolate a trigger in stem cells, which could be, the, they say, the key to growing bone and combating conditions like osteoporosis and obesity. Um, I guess it's a culmination of years of work to define, to define this biochemical switch that determines whether stem cells become bone or fat. Mm. So I guess these are um, mesenchymal stem cells, and now they've identified um, how they can t- you know, toggle this stem cell potency or the, what the cell turns into and they can more uh, direct it down those lineages better. Uh, and they know the location of the switch and what it is. And so this is, uh, this is their discovery. Uh, I'm not finding the journal here, but the link will be up on stemcellpodcast.com. Um, there was this news about this kind of newly found stem cell state. You hear about this? It's close, closer to this transitional phase. It's, um, you it's know not the fuzzy cells? No, it's yeah, no. This, so this is like mystery. This is, I guess, it's like among the mysteries of the embryonic developing are the events that cause the cells to realize at an embryonic fate, and then you know, and others to give rise to placental tissue. You know, this whole thing of like the extra, you know, the totipotency versus pluripotency. I guess you know, where mm. uh, you know, embryonic line- lineages may emerge from ES cells or embryonic stem cells and induce pluripotent stem cells, and they're considered to be pluripotent, but they're not totipotent. Because they have not been thought to give uh, rise to the extra embryonic cell types, such as the placenta, trophoblast, or the placenta. So you have pluripotent give rise to plural things, many things, and totipotent meaning giving rise to all things, including uh, placenta. And so um, this study is saying that ESCs and IPS may be more flexible than one's thought. And this is out of the University of Missouri. Uh, they say that ES cells and IPS cells may enter a state of heightened potency one that can lead them to all main developmental cell lineages, including the placental trophoblast. And so they guess this discovery was serendipitous, which like I find most discoveries are. Um, they were t- attempting to isolate trophoblast stem cells from human ES that had been exposed to a brief, like a pulse of BMP. Uh, and they really say that that really was the, the key. Um, um, they said they also added two other drugs that temporarily inhibited biochemical pathways associated with the pluripotent state of stem cells. Um, and when they resulted in a colony, these manip- manipulations, they supposed that the colony was indeed composed of trophoblast cells. 
Uh, um, and they said, however, they reconsidered after they conducted morphological and transcriptome analysis. They realized that the colonies were not trophoblasts. They were quite related to, but distinct, but distinct from pluripotent progenitors. So I guess there's this some sort of uh, uh, um, kind of fate or some sort of temporary phase that um, allows these cells to give rise to these trophoblastic lineages. I'm not, I'm not really too sure of the scientific details, but I will read it in more yeah, depth. Trophoblast so, is always like the linchpin. It's like, oh, you get that, what is it, CDX or I forgot uh, the markers for uh, trophoblast, but they're not that great. <laughs> and it's always like, can you make trophoblast to be totipotent? Yes, yeah, exactly. So I guess they're saying that they have a unique stem cell phenotype, really. That's what you should call it, by human ES cells and IPS cells in response to this transient BMP exposure. And I guess they inhibit activin and FGF. Uh, and so you can get this. So so you can check that out. We'll put the link up. Um, this this I saw from this company, Athersis. Uh, they announced the results from a phase two study of multi-stem cell therapy for tre- treatment of ischemic stroke. And uh, apparently it was not good. Uh, it was not. Uh, they demonstrated favorable safety, um, but they did not show any difference after 90 days versus placebo. So um, I don't know how that's going to fare uh, going forward. But just so everybody goes out there, I thought I'd put this on because we're going to talk about clinical trials today. And a lot of them, most, I don't know about most, a lot of them do fail in clinical trial. And this this is not failing. It's just not showing that really things are uh, are working very well. So I guess you might take that as a, uh, a failure. Um, and so I'm just going to end with this last paper before we go on uh, out of the lab of Paul J. Tizar. Uh, we know Paul, a case western. Uh, so Paul, he was on the show. He works on um, you know many things, stem cell biology. But the main clinical correlate and main clinical uh, focus in the lab is multiple sclerosis MS, and we know that it's a demyelinating disorder, right? Yo, so we define myelin as what, like the 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 the, the wrapping up of the neurons or the sheath yeah. surrounding the wire, the, the the rubber around the wire, if you the will. rubber around the copper wire. If you you know that rubber around the wire helps uh, insulate. You know, the, yeah, insulate exactly. So you get that saltatory conduction. I think that's yes. the term. Nice. You like that, huh? Yeah, you like that? bringing that one out of the textbook there. <laughs> you like that? You like that, Paul? I got that stuff. Um, and it allows the neuron to fire and you know get from when you step on you know when you step on that nail, you want to instantly remove your foot from the nail, and that really rapid transduction is helped and made possible by the myelin. And so in MS, it breaks down, and a lot of a lot of the focus in the stem cell world has been to remake from stem cells, new myelinating cells like the oligodendrocytes or the oligodendrocyte precursor cells. And and then you can have what's called a cell replacement therapy where you differentiate the cells into OPCs, oligodendrocyte precursor cells, and then you transplant them into the patient. And in theory, they should remyelinate. We talked a little bit about this with Valentina uh, uh, from NICEP as well. Right. Well, uh, in this study, and Paul's doing that in the lab, th- this approach uh, he, he took was very different and and very unique and and one of the main reasons why it, it was published in Nature, in my opinion, is that he talks about and shows the activation of endogenous stem cells. This is an area of stem cell research that I'm fascinated with. I really think it's going to be the way things go. It's how do you get the cells inside our body to activate without having to take anything out? And so, uh, what they showed was two drugs that are already on the market: an antifungal and a steroid. Yeah, interesting, the interesting for use. Athlete's the, foot. Yeah, the antifungal is myconazole. I think it's myconazole. I hope it's myconazole. It is. It is. Uh, yeah. It is it. All right. And myconazole 
is used for uh, ringworm, athlete's foot, jock itch, and I think yeast infections. Yeah. Um, uh, but not to say that it has to, you know, I mean, just sidebar. Anyway, there are two drugs already on the market that may be able to be used to stimulate these endogenous um, kind of OPCs or oligo-generating, myelin-generating cells to do that. And they actually uh, show this uh, in the study in vivo. Uh, they have in vitro, and they did it, injected these uh, drugs into a mouse model of MS and show that they can improve remyelination. It's a really, really awesome, fascinating study. Uh, really one of the first uh, uh, studies to show uh, that you can kind of turn on something and, and get uh, kind of activate a stem cell, activate a progenitor population, and get a functional repair. Uh, and these are already, like I said, two drugs already on the market. Um, yeah, the other so- one's for eczema. Is that what it is? Yeah, the other drugs for eczema. See that? You never know where these drugs are going to come from. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so congratulations to the Tazar Lab. We will have Paul on the show uh, to to go in that uh, into a lot more depth uh, there. You can check that out. It's in Nature. Yeah, it's just online now. The 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 in vivo results were pretty dramatic, and uh, it was able to reverse some of the paralysis in the in their model of MS. And, you know, one thing that I've been reading about uh, with all the press is I, I'm really impressed by how Paul has tempered, like, the, and the you know, he was saying these drugs, they, uh, you know, they could be used off-label for something like this, but there's a lot more testing that needs to be done before it's ready for prime time, so... Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's for sure. But I think that the the one thing we always say, and I say in this show a lot, is we know drugs in this country, right? We know drugs, and we are more comfortable with drugs. And this methodology, in you know, looks uses drugs. It's it's drugs already uh, approved to be safe, and um, now we can you know put drugs in and activate stem cells rather than take stem cells out. And once you're taking stem cells out and putting them back in, it requires a whole different set of regulations some of which at the FDA are still working out. So I think this route might help us get there a little quicker. Uh, and so uh, hopefully Paul will do that, and he will eventually help everyone in MS. And, and the, on, on, on the other side to that, will become incredibly wealthy, yeah. buy a really nice house somewhere where he'll allow me to vacation with no qualms. And so, all the time we're uh, in that stem cell podcast tie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, let's close it there and let's move on to the interview, Yosef. All right. Okay, Chris, why don't you bring on our guests? Okay, so if you notice, everybody, Yosef used the plural. We have guests S tonight. We This is our uh, stem cell. I feel like we should have music, like dun-dun. This is the stem cell <laughs> podcast exclusive for the first time. We have two guests on the show. Yosef and I talk a lot about stem cells, obviously, on the stem cell podcast, and we t- do that a lot in the context of basic research, um, you know, discoveries in the lab, we have scientists come on and talk about them, and, and we, we, we tend to ask them, right, Yosef, where's the beef? Tell everybody where they think the first stem cell therapies will come from. So today, actually, um, we have two guests on today, and the, so the, the focus of the conversation is going to be about those therapies, you know, how stem cells can or, or discovering stem cells can get translated to therapy, what's some of the process like. And we talked a lot about stem cell tourism, people going offshore to get these stem cells put back into their body. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Let me start and introduce my guests. I'll start with um, Dr. Megan Muncy, and she's the head of Education, Ethics, Law, and Community Awareness Unit of Stem Cells Australia, uh, based at the University of Melbourne. Um, Megan, Megan is a part of the international research team seeking to understand 
socio-cultural dynamics, I love that phrase, of stem cell tourism from the perspective of Australians who've traveled abroad and contemplating doing so, so getting it from firsthand. Um, and, you know, we talked about this in the intro, uh, the new website launched, Closer Look at Stem Cells, launched by ISSCR. And Dr. Muncy really was the chairperson, is the chairperson of the task force assembled to shape and redesign that website. Um, and she and others, um, I think it was a seven-person task force, she can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, led an assessment of the previous website and changed the content, really, really turned it around. It's really fantastic. So we'll get into that a little bit. And um, our other guest, Dr. Mario DeCruz, um, I'm going to get to his bio here. Um, so this is, a, this is a really great perspective, too, to have, Yosef. So Dr. DeCruz finished his medical degree in 1991, and after doing a few years of resident rot rotations, decided on a surgical career. I always said if I was to become a doctor, I would try surgery. I don't know if I'd be good at it. Um, in, in 2001, while uh, in a, a general surgical registrar at Austin Hospital, uh, he became a C5-6 quadriplegic as a result of a motor vehicle accident. And being a quadriplegic medical practitioner, he's both a provider and consumer of information in the spinal injury and more specifically, the stem cell space, and really working as a practitioner and mentor to people living with spinal cord injury, which I admire, um, and really trying to bridge their expectations with real achievements and the progress of stem cell medicine, something that Yosef and I hope we try to do some on this podcast. So a long intro for both, but both doctors, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. All right. Hello. Yeah. Uh, all right, so there's so many ways to go. So I think this is what we do. Why don't we start with a little intro for context? So, you know, Megan, why don't we start with you, and then we can go over to Mario. Megan, just tell us a little bit about your, you know, yourself, um, and, and tell us your stem cell story. Tell us how you got into the world of stem cells. So I'm a stem cell biologist. I started my PhD in stem cell biology in the mid-'90s, and uh, prior to that, I'd worked in infertility uh, uh, infertility services, so IVF. I was an IVF embryologist, and I was uh, really interested about this concept of reprogramming. This was way back before Dolly, before iPS cells, and I was interested in exploring uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer to reset somatic cell nuclei back to a pluripotent state. And actually, at that stage, you know, the fundamental question was, could you? We knew John Gurdon can do something like that in frog, but could we make pluripotent stem cells? And um, really, whilst this became the proof of concept for therapeutic cloning. My interest was really around kind of challenging this dogma. Was it restricted in mammalian uh, development or what, could you reset the somatic nuclei, the potential of that nuclei? So that was kind of my PhD project. And um, I was really delighted when I finished it in 2000 and published this sort of first proof of concept. But I was very, very surprised about how my work, which was just a little tiny bit in the puzzle, was received in the general public. I felt like it was overly praised where I had all these people ringing me up, wanting me to be, wanting to be my guinea pig, even though I did all this work in mouse, I must make clear. <laughs> um, uh, and I was also named and shamed apparently in the Vatican because what I was doing was so outrageous. And I was thinking, hey, hey, you know, we've got a, a real mis misconception about what we're actually doing in the lab. So... I started working in biotech after I graduated for an Australian uh, biotech company. And um, sort of ad hoc, I was doing all this sort of public engagement. Yeah. And so then over the last kind of 10 years, I've turned that more into, um, uh, I suppose, a, a job. Yeah, yeah. A, ma a main focus where I, I see this real need 
to get out into the community and talk about what we do to demystify stem cell biology, to put it in perspective and, you know, I suppose foster that hope in medical research but not the hype. And uh, my current position is is at the University of Melbourne where um, I, I have the great pleasure of working with a whole lot of colleagues around Australia in this sort of big consortium called Stem Cells Australia. And um, my colleagues are, are basic researchers and clinicians. Uh, and then what I do, I suppose, is, is that interface between government policy, media, the general public, um, as well as do some academic research with my colleagues in sociology and, and bioethics. So that's my stem cell story in a mm. nutshell. Um, uh, you know, having been in the field for over 15 years, um, it's a fascinating journey and I'm, I'm looking forward to the next, the next part of it. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see where, where the stem cell field goes in the next 10 years. F- fantastic. Uh, Mario, would you, would you mind uh, telling us a little bit about your stem cell story? Sure, yeah, because, um, you know, as you said in your intro, um, being a quadriplegic and a medical practitioner puts me in sort of a position where uh, the thing that Megan was talking about is very important because we need to know what's going on as consumers in the stem cell world. And um, how we came together is because um, as a medical practitioner, I see, uh, I devote, you know, uh, my business to looking after uh, people in wheelchairs, and uh, they often have, you know, lots of queries about stem cells, and this is how Megan and I met because there is so much hype in this area, and there's so much uh, in expectation clashing that um, uh, there needs to be, and this is the job that Megan does, which is clarify some of the information for the consumers, and this is the sort of area in which, um, you know, I find myself constantly having to. Uh, be a bridge between people who, um, because of the, the nature of the, it's, it's so technical, it needs people to demystify and it also needs people to give, um, you know, a, a, put a realistic spin to it because being a person with an injury or a condition that needs uh, miraculous treatment can make people sometimes too hopeful and they're vulnerable to people taking advantage of that. And uh, so there's where I come into it. Um, I have, as, as, as you said, been a mentor to uh, people developing quadriplegia who have just developed quadriplegia and just learned to live with it, as well as their families. And they're full of questions. And, um, you know, stem cell tourism has become a big thing because it's advertised as because Australia has got a proper scientific environment, uh, places that have a less stringent scientific environment offer opportunities to people to go there and people are under the misconception that they're getting their treatment because in Australia the environment's too stringent. So they think that um, they're actually getting treatment that would otherwise be available to them if Australia wasn't so stringent in their scientific um, regulation, which is not true because quite often the treatments are are nowhere near what uh, they promised to and this is where I sort of try and help people get a realistic idea of um, um, what they can expect and what the actual achievements have been. So, so thank you both for the, for the context. I, for, I guess for me, uh, and 
I guess I'll start, Yos, and then we can go from here. You know, we use the word hope a lot, right? I mean, I hear this uh, a lot, especially in research and in our field, hope. And hope can be a tremendous thing. But it can also be a dangerous thing, I feel, especially when you're when, when someone is so, you know, uh, looking for anything, right? right. And, and, and that, could, that could cause them or lead them to go away from their normal rationale and, and do things that one might not normally do. So can, can we talk about that idea of hope and how, you, how, you, how, how we can deal with this for, with, with patients who are in some cases desperate for something and are, and are asking, hey, what's, what's going on? What's going on? You keep promising, you keep promising. Uh, when is it going to happen? Um, and if it's not going to happen soon, you know, I'm just going to go over here and get this done. I'm sure you hear about this a lot. I'm just wondering, you know, your approach to this and what you see out there. You know, Megan's got a fantastic, uh, one of her talks is entitled Hype or Hope. They're very similar words, and that's exactly what the issue is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So so I think there's, there's a couple of things to kind of say um, in response. I, I think... You're absolutely right. Hope is is what we're talking about, and it's the commodification of hope that I suppose we're we're concerned about. Um, We don't want to take away people's hope. We don't want to take away people's enthusiasm and excitement about this this fascinating part of medical research, but it needs to be in context. And uh, part of the sociology study that I mentioned earlier that that I'm involved in um, is is actually called, the, the first part of that study has been called Hopeful Journeys. And uh, what we found really interesting in speaking to Australians who travelled abroad is that, you know, to counter what you just said, they don't feel as though they're vulnerable. They don't feel as though um, they're, they're necessarily being exploited. They feel empowered. Hmm. Uh, and they, they feel delighted to finally have met someone who's prepared to do something. And one of the things I think we need to do in the community is challenge what I see is a conflict of interest. The provider who's selling them the hope, selling them the treatment, often is not an expert, is a self-appointed expert. Right. And, and it's that kind of, and, and, they're, and they're charging you know, large sums of money, but they're also, as you say, exploiting this hope. So That's we need funny. to arm the patient, arm the family of the patient with more information so that they can evaluate. ask questions. And yeah. They can evaluate the therapy because yeah. the person... Advertising the therapy, providing the therapy, and charging them the money is also the person giving them the the metrics of it. And, and, and if they do, if, and not all of them do, but if they do ask uh, for some kind of consent process, they're also the one taking the consent. consent so there's, right. there's no independence. And I think that that's not what's seen. Uh, the other aspect that we're trying to, uh, to, to raise is the need for people who are doing their own research which is going to happen. You know, people use Dr. Google all the time. We all do it. Um, but to make sure that they take that information that they gain from their search, from, from their research, back to an independent, trusted medical doctor who's not trying to sell them some kind of stem cell or, or other miraculous breakthrough, unproven, unjustified, unfounded treatment. And for those people that are looking on Dr. Google, they don't seem to get the difference between experimental therapy, clinical trials, and unproven therapies, you know. So there's a bit of a gray area. And, um, you know, there's uh, a lot of exponents of this, overseas especially, advertise it as being some sort of clinical trial. And the person, you know, the layperson looking at the information sometimes finds it difficult to distinguish between 
what's a legitimate clinical trial and what's just experimental. Um, and uh, also distinguishing between real clinical data and, um, you know, um, claims being advertised, you know. Right. I'm I mean, along curious. those lines, Mario, I mean, there are, I mean, currently, right, there are very few little, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, stem cell treatments that are really safe and effective, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and to be fair, you know, uh, for over 40 years, we've had safe and effective stem cell treatments. Sure. But the big but is only only for applications. Certain of, yeah, yeah, for certain conditions. Diseases of the, of the blood and immune system. Not a general panacea, not a silver bullet. And, you know, I think that's why it's important when we have a conversation around stem cell therapies and stem cell applications that we talk about the condition, we talk about the application of stem cell science for that condition because it may not be applicable for another condition or even you know, when we talk about macular degeneration, a possible treatment for that is not going to cure all forms of blindness. It might help people with macular degeneration. Yeah. So the science has got to kind of match the disease. disease. I see. Right, I see. Yeah, I'm a little curious how you uh, temper expectations because I, I, maybe about four years ago, I saw a report on Dan Rather reports that really alarmed me where he followed a, a black kid who was like 19. He had gotten shot in a car and uh, his parents, he had found a, a, a stem cell tourism place in China that was like $30,000. His parents mortgaged their house. They put him up in a hotel. And I remember seeing this kid get an injection in his back and they didn't really say what it was. They were like, we're giving him stem cells, but they didn't really describe what was being put into this poor kid's back. And at the end of the report, the worst part was they tried to get in touch with him months later and there was no response. And who knows, you know, I think what they were paying for was for the hope. And 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 if you don't offer somebody an alternative to something like that, they, they, they'll just say, hey, you're just saying to caution, use caution, but I'm just going to do this because it may work and you're not offering an alternative. Right. In other words, what else do I have, right? Is that like, you know, what are, there's nothing to lose almost. I feel like there are patients saying that, like, you know, this is the only, this is the only thing I have. It's exactly the thing I think uh, you said that you're saying. That's um, actually um, that the website deals with as well, uh, because for every um, condition that's that's out there, there's lots of people. Um, you know, like for for instance, in my in quadriplegia, there's not much that we are able to advertise uh, to offer the patient now, but there's lots of stuff that's being offered, you know, elsewhere, and uh, this is where. The, the um, you know tempering the reality to, to to patients and the hope is very difficult because they and this is why the website is so important because they just see uh, going and having this treatment as like you said thirty thousand dollars thirty thousand dollars to someone who's got you know who's, who's the mother of someone who's become a, a quadriplegic is okay to spend if they can get their son walking again it's okay to mortgage the house. But what they don't realize is other hidden, it's not just the $30,000. And that's where this website comes into play because there's massive, you know, health downsides to this thing as well because they can become seriously ill. Mm. There have been reports of people, you know, dying because of this. 
Um, more importantly, participation in one trial, especially if it's if it's not uh, uh, a good one, um, excludes you from participating in other, you know, possibly further better trials. You know. Mm. And um, so there's a lot of downsides that they don't take into consideration. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think tempering hope's a, a real challenge. And and back to what we were saying before, we don't want to take away hope, but I think we need to be frank and 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 you know a bit straightforward about where we're actually where we are in terms of delivering on the promise of of, of stem cell treatments, regenerative medicine. Um, for some people in the community, they will hear that they will go to websites like this closer looks at closer look at stem cells and they will pick up this information around I suppose cultivating their own skepticism their mm-hmm. own cynicism um, and they'll and and you know I talk to a lot of people in the community and and they'll say oh you know I, I thought it was too good to be true but there are others who perhaps won't want to hear that message and and will pursue this treatment Back to what you were talking about before around the story you saw. Um, this is uh, it was very typical to a lot of uh, people that we that Mario and I speak to mm-hmm. uh, in spinal cord injury, but also in other in other conditions. And even in our sociology study, people were quite happy to come and speak to us. But there were people who felt like they had a you know a, a relatively positive experience. Maybe didn't get the improvement that they were seeking, but were happy to have had a go. Now, I've also met other people who did not have a good experience who were really upset for having spent a lot of money and, and, and relied on family and friends to fundraise, you know, um, 300 grand or something like that to send them to India. Uh, but they won't come forward and speak to the public. They won't come forward and even participate in our anonymous research study because they feel foolish and regret perhaps their decision. Yeah. So... Um, I often find it really interesting in talking to the media and trying to raise this issue. Uh, journalists are really interested in this challenging proposition, how do patients navigate, how do the families make this decision. Right. Um, but, of course, they always want to speak to somebody who's had the counter story because you can easily find someone, particularly on these websites, that use patient testimonials to Positive. promote the yes. treatment. You can usually find someone who will speak up for uh, an intervention, but it's very hard to find someone who's prepared to share their story if they're kind of embarrassed about having done it in the first place. I can see that. Now, is the problem that there's just no international version of the FDA? Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of it. But I think the other thing, you know, we've had today in the discussion, we've been talking about um, traveling abroad, you know, there's also gaps in local regulations that allow uh, unproven treatments to be offered in Australia, in, Australia, that's in, right. in America, Our TGA. in countries that have a really rigorous uh, um, uh, regulatory system. You know, Megan will tell you that she found that in the Australian TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Association um, legislation or, or uh, policies, they've got the word autologous and homologous mixed up so that it gives a wide gray area to, to people to put stem cells from adipose tissue into other parts of the body. So, so, what, so what, we're, what we're seeing here in Australia, and I know this is happening in other countries around the world, but this use of the patient's own cells, so autologous cells, um, we have a, 
I, I almost like a medical exemption here that means that if a doctor, an Australian registered doctor, takes the cells from a patient and puts them back into the patient, they can virtually do whatever they want. Anywhere in the body, so it doesn't have to be homologous. Yes, yeah, so there's, there's no can, restriction around so manipulation. You can put adipose tissue in, in, in a person's joint. Or into their vein. <laughs> and, and, and this is being offered for, for conditions ranging from osteoarthritis to uh, motor neurone disease or ALS um, uh, to, to... Anti-aging. Anti-aging to... Anti-wrinkles, to, yeah. To mul- uh, multiple sclerosis. And, and, and back to, you know, tempering hope and managing expectation. When you can get it in your own home country, and particularly a country where... It's renowned for almost being over-regulated. Oh, that's right, yeah. the, the, the perception for the patient is that, that um, you it know, it's, right. it must yeah. be legitimate. Yeah. Mm. So, um, so it's not just overseas that this, 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 these kind of treatments are being offered. Uh, it's also it's in our own backyards, and I think that's a really concerning development. I, I also feel that people think that if the cells come from our body, that they can't be bad for you. You know, exactly. I, I've, I've heard that a lot before. You know, well, they came from my body, so how how can it go wrong? And you know, and, and, I, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was say, and not only that, because it's from my body, how dare you say what I can and can't do with Exa- my body? Exactly. <laughs> and people don't get that if you take fat out of a you know liposuction and stick it back in a vein, that can be fatal. Mm. You know, and, you know, there's people, like you said, like Joseph was saying, um, in India, there's, there's a few practitioners who are taking stem cells and injecting into the person's vein Well, they're every actually day. from an embryo. Yeah. yeah. From, that is even not even autologous. <laughs> mm. And people don't get that that's really harmful and that can actually kill you. Mm. So it's not just the financial cost or the cost of traveling or the, if it, they go, I don't care. If, if it doesn't work, at least I've had a shot. But the point is that that's not the only consideration that can say it might be quite harmful and you might you can even die. So I think, you know, back to managing hope, I I think it has to be a a multifaceted approach, having more conversations with people in the community, having great websites like this new one for ISCR to raise this kind of level of awareness, to raise a little bit of, I suppose, um, I don't want to use the word doubt, but you know what I mean? Think twice about where we're, where we're at. And if, if it sounds too good to be true, you know, maybe Most it is. is. Right. Or at, yeah. least, at least you should look into it further, you know, and, well, and, and, take, and, and, and question. I mean, that, it's easy. And I get, so let me just do this. It's closerlookatstemcells.org. We're going to take We're going to talk a little bit more detail in a minute. But I, I agree. It's, it's, you know, I, but I'm not, you know, Mario, Mario, this is why you could speak to this so well. I'm not in a situation. I'm also a scientist, so I tend to doubt everything. But if I'm if I'm the average if I'm the average person, especially if I'm somebody who has some sort of injury or disease, and I'm in my last, it's sometimes sitting down and and taking the rational approach, checking all the you know the dots is is a tough thing to do because you're just so frustrated. I have to imagine, right, that you just yeah. want to you just want something to help. And even in my position as a as a as a quadriplegic, when I'm telling. And it's not so much often the patients themselves, but it's their families who have all this, um, you know, bursting with hope. And right. they're the ones that find hard. Even it's like acceptance, isn't yeah, it? Really? Yeah. And even seeing me in a wheelchair, telling them as a doctor that this is not a probably a good idea to go and do this, uh, they, they find hard to, you know, they sometimes, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of just not, uh, you know, uh, uncommonly, where Families and patients um, don't take kindly to what I'm saying, 
and they think that I'm being a doctor before a quadriplegic, you know, and they think I'm being, uh, huh. yeah, and uh, I find this all the time, but I think that, uh, you know, um, uh, what I was just want to say before was, like this website is doing, is what we need to do is empower people with tools that they can actually analyze information for themselves. So if they have an idea of how, what to look for in terms of uh, clinical trial results, you know, if they understand what a clinical trial is, if they understand the difference between just claims and actual results, then they can make a decision for themselves. So rather than tell them that, that A or B is bad, tell them how to distinguish between A, B, and C is the good way to go about it, which is what I think that I try and do now, and it's certainly that's how me and Megan have come together, is because the website and her whole focus is this empower people with an ability to distinguish themselves, um, warn them that not everything out there is fair income, and then give them the tools to distinguish between what is and what isn't. And that's where, you know, uh, we have to work at it. And, and so that's, that's a good transition to the new uh, website. Just launched Closer Look at StemCells.org. Um, you know, with with the International Society for Stem Cell Research. So let's talk about that. Let, 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 let if we could, let's let's walk me through. I'm I'm somebody who's interested in in stem cells as a therapy. Whether I'm interested in going to get a treatment that I've heard about, or I'm interested just understanding how stem cells can be, you know, eventually brought into a treatment. Tell me how I can uh, go about finding information and what this website aims to do. So I think, I think you've come to the right place. This is a great website. It really is a, a comprehensive place to start your research. So there's some great basic... So if you look at the, at the homepage, there's quite a few uh, options to, to navigate around. You can learn about stem cells. You can learn about different types of stem cells. But I think the, area, the, the two tabs that I think are, are most valuable are from lab to you and stem cells and medicine. So uh, if you look at from lab to you, this really talks a lot about how science becomes medicine. That's right, and translation. Yeah, about translation. And, and like Mario was saying, I, I think it's really hard for a lot of people to delineate between, you know, what is a clinical trial, what's experimental research, what's... Um, what, what, what do you mean by unproven? Um, so these are real. This is a really good place to come and learn a little bit more about um, you know how research is translated from the lab to to you to the, to the patient. Uh, very, around- sorry, I'm just saying it's very important, and I feel that a lot a lot of scientists actually don't know that process as well as they should. I was just pointing. Not- yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and the tab, from this sort of um, tab from lab to you, there's things to consider about at clinical trials where there's like a series of little questions, um, there's 10, and there's, there's some, uh, a drop-down uh, information text in response to each question. And I, I think um, questions like, you know, understanding more about the science behind the, the, the approach that's being offered talking about risks, looking at risks and benefits and, and trying to find out a bit more about what they really are and what you hope to gain from participating in the clinical Good trial. Job. I think that's something that's really interesting. When I, I talk to people in the community, often, you know, the fact that they can't get on a clinical trial, I feel like they, they feel like they're being denied a treatment. They mm-hmm. don't necessarily recognise that this is an intervention that's being evaluated. It may never be a treatment, mm-hmm. but it's the first step to evaluating whether it may or may not 
well, A, whether it's safe, and B, whether it's going to be effective. So, so I don't know, Murray, did you want to say anything about, about that? I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the next tab. But I don't know if you wanted to. I know you've, you've cruised the website and you kind of liked it. Yeah, I did. And what, what for me, it was interesting, you know, not just as a, um, a consumer, as a quadriplegic, but also as a medical practitioner. The stuff there, like you said, a lot of scientists done and, lo- and lots of doctors especially GPs yeah. and people faced with the questions that quadriplegics ask, mm. this, mm. this would be perfect because there's lots of information there that they have that, that's on the website that they need to have to be able to, to give to the patients that ask the questions, especially because, you know, the first thing um, patients do when they hear about a trial is they go to their GP and they ask their GP, is this trial fair income, is this... And quite a lot of GPs don't... A, have not invested the time to go and look into this thing. So they will either give them, you know, um, no information, no helpful or useful information, or send them off somewhere else. So this is a really good thing for health professionals. You know, I think there's lots of stuff. Yeah, I noticed in the next That can empower me to pass on to... to, you know, lay people as well. Yeah. In, in the next tab, you have uh, stem cells in medicine, and uh, you have several different diseases there, uh, macular degen, multiple sclerosis, heart disease, and diabetes. Um, are, do you plan on expanding this to, say, Parkinson's and spinal cord injury? or uh, this Absolutely. Is, yeah. This is just the start, and I think it's um, we very much see this website as, as evolving. We're going to add more condition-specific pages but also, you know, there's the option um, of being able to add contemporary science to the website through the blog so that you'll notice there's a tab called blog. Um, it's actually Stem Cells in Focus. And um, ICCR will be able to add um, new blog postings uh, about, break, you know, what, what's happening, con- contemporary research yeah. and, and, and put it in a way that hopefully people in the community will be able to access it, understand yeah. it, be intrigued by it. And also for medical practitioners to keep updated what's going on in the stem cell field. So, but I, I just wanted to go back to the stem cells and medicine tab because uh, one of my favorites is uh, nine, nine things to know about stem cell treatments. Mm. And the reason I like it is that, uh, you know, I think it's good information. But I, I think some of the, if you, if you go to the nine um, uh, points, if you drop down and expand upon those, you'll see that there's some some kind of, there's some text there, but there's also some warning um, yeah. warnings that I think are really valuable. And, you know, back to what we were saying earlier in the conversation around having talking to people in the community, these are the kind of things that come up all the time. Um, you know, what have I got to lose? Why don't I give it to a go? That's exactly right. I, I've, I only saw this website for the first time a couple of days ago, and on those nine things were all the nine things <laughs> that, because I was looking to them to see if it left anything out, it doesn't. But those are nine things that I get asked most about as a mentor. Mm. You know, um, at all, it's amazing how often uh, people have the same questions, and these are the ones. Mm. And um, you know, and, and some of them are quite important because, like, like, like number six, for instance, cells from your own body are not automatically safe. Oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, every medical procedure has risks, yeah. and 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 that's why we need to evaluate it, and and not just start selling it. Um, so, so I think. Can I just one more thing? Yeah, sure, Number five, just before, the science behind a disease should match the science behind the treatment. Mm. And that would simply just rule out everything that's that's happening in Australia with the 
adiposity should be put elsewhere, you know, mm. and that um, the same stem cell treatment is unlikely to work for different diseases or conditions. Those two things will answer, you know, the wealth of questions in relation to the dodgy stem cell therapy that's being offered around in Australia. Yeah, because those two points, you know, uh, would straight away show up those treatments in the light that they actually are, which is not, which are not right. Yeah, so hopefully those, that information will get people thinking. And then if they wanted to take it further, if they still want to explore uh, what's being offered by a clinic, they can go to the stem cell, quest, sorry, stem cell treatments, what to ask. And here there's a series of questions. Now, these have been drawn and updated from the ICR handbook, which is also an excellent resource and available, I think, in 10 languages um, through this website. But, but you can see here that there's some really like a detailed checklist. And what I like about, about this kind of detail, you know, we're talking before about different sort of pockets in the community. Some people don't really want to ask too many questions, but there's others who really want to know more. And this is a great tool for them, like you were saying, Mario, before, that we need to give people more tools to be empowered to ask the right questions. Well, here's some things to ask around scientific evidence. What's the justification for the procedure? What about safety and emergency? What happens if you go to a clinic in India? Um, what happens if you have an adverse outcome? You know, who's going to, how are you going to get home? Um, what, what sort of follow-up is there with the treatment? So, you know, these are really detailed but deliberately detailed because I think for those people who want to go, want to be more armed, um, I think this is some really good, uh, these are really good questions to ask. And hopefully by asking these questions and then evaluating the responses they get with perhaps an independent doctor, they can put in context whether this is a risk that's worth taking for them, whether they're satisfied. Um, and, and like we said before, you know, maybe people will still pursue treatment, but we're really hoping they do think twice. Well, I, I, think, I think it's exactly correct. I think I always say this. I've, I've said this about stem cells, the, the field, for, for as long as I've been in it. You're entitled to make a decision, you know, form an opinion on stem cells. Uh, it's your enti- you, you're allowed to think whatever you want, but I urge you before you do, make sure you understand the facts Make sure you make sure you ask questions and make sure you talk to people that that know you know know what's going on. Same thing here. I I I, I can't tell anyone not to do anything with their own body. However, they should be able and have a, a an accessible format uh, information that they can guide those decisions and then use this information to collectively decide. That's all we really can do. Like you're saying, is empower people to make their own choice, but make it more informed. Yeah, and I think, you know, right. also the layout is really important because I don't know if you've ever been on the NIH website or any government <laughs> website. They're usually like just text, 12-point like font, <laughs> just like not interactive at all. And it's like, you know, you just feel like you're looking in an encyclopedia when you want to <laughs> look at something, you know, interactive. And so this is a really great idea, really great resource. And uh, I'm glad we had you on to to us to introduce it to our audience because uh, we do have a lot of lay people, people who are you know suffering from disease or know somebody who is, and uh, this would be a great resource uh, moving forward. So uh, thanks for coming on and uh, and introducing our audience to 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 the website. So so again, the website for everybody again, it's closerlookatstemcells.org. Uh, you can go there and 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 look look up everything we've been talking about. It's really fantastically laid out. You can also 
from I believe from ISSCR.org. Find the link if you're on that website and come across. Um, so uh, Megan and Mario, thank you so much for the uh, for the time this evening we uh, or this morning over in uh, where yeah. you guys are. And, uh, but look, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you guys. We really enjoyed it, and you know, thanks for the opportunity to speak about what we think is a really important is, new resource. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. And keep up the good work of empowering people. Really, it's it's a, for for us and for everyone in the in this field and every aspect. It's it's an important component. Thank you so much again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Yosha. Thank you, Chris. Goodbye. All right, have a good night. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, there it goes. Closer look, man. So, so that was re- that was cool. That was a first for the Stem Cell Podcast in a bunch of ways. Two two guests, and really, we had. It's nice always to hear the other side, Yos. Like to hear from from you know someone who who has a disease that could potentially be uh, helped from stem cells, stem cell research, and then to talk with Megan and Mario about you know, how we can relate to the public and to the people, to the audience, where the status of stem cells, you know, where it is in terms of therapies. I, I think this was a really good episode. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Yeah, and that's a great idea on ISSCR's part. So uh, kudos to them. Uh, so now is the part where we rant. And uh, I think we got a good one here today. It's it's something I think most people can relate to if you have a car. Um, we're going to rant about two things. I think, uh, my, from my end, I want to rant about poorly timed traffic lights. I just moved out of New York where I think they have really good, well-timed traffic lights. Whereas, uh, the town I moved to is terrible. Literally on my way home, I, there were six lights where one turned green and the next one turned red. And I did this for about six city blocks, and it was maddening. I was like, "Why? Who? I've never understood that part. Why? Why? Why even? Say, I mean, people go to school; they become civil engineers, and you would think this would be like one hundred and one that every and like but, when one turns green, the other should turn green. Yeah, like, like that's like a real tough concept to grasp, yeah, and like stagger it so that you know it's it's not all at once. It's like there's like a little delay, and so that by the time you get to it. It, it it's turning green and it's uh, it just really frustrates me coming from like if you go up First Avenue in New York City it, it, you could like ride from First Street to 100th Street as a smooth ride because they're so well timed whereas yeah you know what I will give some leeway where I'm somewhat sympathetic is uh you know how they have those like crosswalks where people press the button and then it cues up. Uh, a timer for them to walk across the street. I could see that throwing it off, but it should somehow like resync so that you know you're not speeding up to a red light. Essentially, yeah. But let me tell you something about that button too. I feel like the the cross button is the most dubious thing in our whole society. I feel like that button is there for show, dude. <laughs> what do you mean? Have you how many times have you ever pressed that button and actually have it work? I feel like I've pressed the button. And by the time the lights changed, it was like I could have just walked on my own. I feel like it's just there for peace of mind. That's another. That's another. I, I hear what you're saying. The, the worst, the most obvious is when the light is is red, turns green. You go like a block, and then that light turns red. Yeah. I don't. I, I've literally sat there and tried to understand why they could possibly have done that. Like, am I missing the reason? And I don't, I don't, I haven't come up with one yet. Yeah, maybe you know, with like the internet, we can or an app or something to just get this to the attention of civil engineers in every city that this is just you know this is probably why there's so much traffic besides uh people not being able to merge i feel like merging is like 
people's brains turn off when they merge, and and that's why there's they just hope they close their eyes and just hope for the best. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But you know the other so the other part to the rant. This is funny, man. We could do a whole hour rant on on road rants. um, Is is the is the left lane truly a faster lane? Yes, that's what because uh, yes because what's with these people that get in the left lane and are going like forty mile, forty five miles an hour, and then you have no way of passing them, but around the right, which is illegal. I don't. I, do they just not understand? Is it an unwritten rule? Like, is it an actual rule? I don't get it. No, it's 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 the rule, and I feel like some of them get like either they never learned it, and or I feel like some of them get in there. They're like, I'm gonna be a big shot and get in the the fast lane, and then. They realize they don't have the chops, but they then they clam up and they get all they get all they get all tight. And risky. Yeah, they start clamming up. They get all sweaty and they they can't handle the pressure, and so they just yeah. stay there. <laughs> and then they don't want to change lanes. They get nervous. I feel like they get nervous. Like they don't want to go to the right because they're afraid that like you're behind them, and so then it becomes this whole mess. But then I'm going to be the one that gets pulled over because I got to pass them on the right. And and then you know a cop's there and he pulls me over for doing that. So I, man, I don't know. You got people in the left lane that shouldn't be, and you got poor timed, ill timed traffic lights. Yeah, absolutely. two two high class problems in society that yeah. need to be fixed. Yeah, immediately. I love how these come right after we talk to a, a C five C six quadriplegic. I mean, yeah. like this is the this is the problems we're talking about. But hey, that's true. You got to rant. You got to rant about something, I guess. That's right? True. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it, this is the frivolous part of the podcast. So uh, this is the lightning part of the podcast. Yeah. Yes, gonna, you're right. This is the lightning it, part. So. All right. On that uh, episode forty three, one for the books. All right, my man. I'll talk to you on forty four. See you All later. Right. Man. Talk to you later.